0: So I got a question this morning. How many of you have ever experienced firsthand some kind of natural disaster? Okay. Most of you know I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, as a kid in Cleveland, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. Now that's not a natural disaster, but that's pretty cool, isn't it? No? It, it literally did. That, that river was so toxic and so polluted that it caught on fire one day. A river caught on fire. I mean, that's straight out of the book of Revelation, isn't it? I mean, that kind of stuff happening. Wow. Okay, that's not a natural disaster, but it makes for a good story when you think about it. Uh, I've got a question for you this morning, and I want to do something a little different this morning, okay? I want you to get yourselves in groups of, I don't know, two, three, four, five, six people at the most. Four is probably the ideal number in this. And I want you just for a minute or two to discuss... These questions. What's the worst storm or natural disaster that you have ever experienced firsthand, and how did you feel during that event? Okay? What's the worst natural disaster that you've ever experienced firsthand, and how did you feel during that event? So, I'm going to give you two minutes, so I don't want big long stories. Get in little groups of around four and talk for a minute. There's a point to this, okay? Okay, let's uh, let's wrap it up if we could, please. If, if you didn't get a chance to share your whole story, uh, you can do so when we're done today, okay? I got to tell you, standing up here, either you guys are in the most talkative mood you've been in in a long time, or you have experienced some amazing natural disasters. Holy cow! I turn you loose and it's a buzz in this room. Wow. I, uh... Go on a fishing trip every year to Minnesota with a friend from college, and his son goes along, and his son usually invites a friend every year. This year, the kid that came along on this trip is one of the most amazing natural disaster stories I've ever heard. He was literally, he was on TV in Ohio. And before I ever met him, I went to the website to a local news channel and saw this kid's story. He lived in two different apartment buildings that were struck. His his um, apartment was struck by lightning two different times and destroyed all of his stuff. Lightning never strikes the same place twice. No, but you can be in two different places that both get hit. And th- this happened to John. It was like... It's you. It's you. I saw you on TV. Probably not something you're real proud of being, being John, but wow. So let me, I, got, I just got to know, how many of you firsthand have experienced a flood, a tornado, an earthquake, a hurricane, a forest fire, Broncos losing the Super Bowl. Oh, that, <laughs> that, that wouldn't be a, that, no, I, I. Don't let me do that. Don't let me do that. I get myself in trouble when I do that. We already took the offering, though. Good. Any of you wanting a rebate? You've got to be quicker than that, okay? So I'm doing a series on the book of the Revelation, okay, entitled Game Over. And the final score is, and we're working our way at this point in time through the seven letters to the seven churches that are at the beginning of the book in chapters two and three. Uh, I'm going to make this next statement over and over and over again because I want to make sure this is absolutely grafted into our hearts that we get this, okay? If a person fails to see the connection between those seven letters and the rest of the book of the Revelation, they miss something of very major significance. There, there are people who read this, and uh, they read those seven letters, and, and their assumption is, well, you know, that was written to seven literal churches 2,000 years ago, and that's great, but it really doesn't have a lot to do with the rest of the book, and it, here it is. It really doesn't apply to us, okay? That was for them. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to all the important stuff, the prophetic, predictive, futuristic stuff. That's what I'm waiting for. Now, I hope you are waiting for that because it is good stuff, but it's not better stuff than what we're talking about right now. Okay. I think those seven letters to seven churches have a dual purpose. They were actual letters to actual churches at a point in time, 2000 years ago, but they also are for us today. The Bible has an amazing, unique ability to speak about three different, four different, five different things all at the same time. And so, while it was speaking to them, I believe absolutely that it speaks to us, and it gives us a plumb line. It gives us a standard which we need to prepare ourselves for what is coming. Well, that sounds awful. Well, maybe. But we need to be ready, don't we? No matter what is around the corner, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared for what's coming. What, what do we mean by what's coming? Well, here's a little inkling in terms of what I mean. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, But realize this. You know when the Bible says realize this, it says realize this for a reason? Because we're not apt many times to realize this. Realize this. In the last days, difficult times... Have a chance of coming. So what it says might come. What does it say? It will come. Difficult days will come. People, the storms of life are here. Are they not beyond natural disasters, earthquakes, tornadoes, and all that other stuff. The storms of life are here. And I believe that they are here and coming in fuller measure. We started this book talking about this next verse, the first verse of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, John. I believe that this is a larger statement about God's sovereignty. These things must take place. These difficult times must take place. But you have to understand the context there is God is sovereign. It's not primarily about gloom and doom. Even if it gets nasty, even if the storms increase, they must take place because God is sovereign and God is good. And as the end unfolds, I don't believe it's all going to be smooth sailing. I just don't. I think personally, we're on the front end of some difficult times. And that life may get a bit more frightening, a bit more scary. But... What we need to do in the midst of that perhaps being the truth is examine and test ourselves and our own personal readiness. If difficult times are coming, don't you want to be ready? You need to be ready. I need to be ready. We need to be ready and make any necessary adjustments to our life so that we're prepared to weather those storms. I want to pass the test. I want you to pass the test. I want us to pass the test as a church. So pay attention, pay attention and have an honest and willing heart that says in light of what God's word says, if I need to make some course corrections, I'm going to make them. You see, don't be like a person who turns on the television and watches the weather. And the guy on channel two is predicting this big, awful storm. And you look at your husband or your wife or your friend and go, Oh, let's go find another channel. I don't like that weather forecast. Hey, good news, everybody. Kathy Saban on channel nine says it's going to be sunny tomorrow. And we act like that's the truth when the the forecast is it's going to pour. You see what I'm saying? Don't just go looking for a better forecast. Let's deal with the reality of, of where we're at. Don't just go change the channel. Have the courage to look at where we're at and what we might be facing. Last reminder before we dive in today. The book of the Revelation is not written to be a scary horror story. It's not its purpose. It's also not a puzzle to solve. Okay, we're not over the next, keep telling you, 423 weeks. It won't be quite that long. But we're not like putting a puzzle together. The purpose of this book, the main purpose of this book is to encourage you and give you hope. You've got to hang on to that, even as it talks about the coming storm. It's to encourage us and give us hope. So in light of that, uh, Mary Hill is going to come and read for us today the letter to the church at Philadelphia. It's Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And as we have been doing every week, I'd like you to ask you to stand as we listen together to God's word. Thank you, Mary.
1: Aren't we blessed to know the God who moves mountains? Thank you, Lord. And to the angels of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
0: Amen. Thanks, Mary. You can have a seat. So let's, uh, let's dig in and figure out what that's all about, what it was about then and how it applies to us today, okay? Uh, a little background information on Philadelphia. It was about 25 miles southeast of the city of Sardis. It's in modern-day Turkey, so that's where these cities were located. This city also sat on a high plateau like Sardis did, and it was also a strategic military city. It was a, a fortress city, just like uh, Sardis was. It was also a major trade route. Its nickname was the gateway to the east because most significant and major trade had to go through Philadelphia to to get back east. Um, The city was known for its leather goods, its textile industry, and especially uh, for its vineyards. The uh, pagan worship there was to the god, small g, Dionysus, uh, also known as Bacchus, the god of the grape harvest, or the, the god of wine, okay? But that wasn't a major problem for the church in Philadelphia. It wasn't the, the pagan influence that they had to work uh, work against or fight against. It was the, the persecution that was coming from the resident Jews, very, very similar to the church in Smyrna, okay? Okay. Um, The other really interesting thing is this church, Philadelphia, along with Smyrna, are the only two churches in the seven letters that don't receive any correction or any rebuke from Christ. So it was a good church. Do you want to be a good church? Me too. So let's take to heart what's written here, all right? The final focal point that you need to get, this city was prone to earthquakes, Matter of fact, it was destroyed in A.D. 17 and again in A.D. 37. That's another one of those physical circumstances that John will refer to uh, in this letter. He alludes to in the promise that he speaks to them, and we'll finish with that today. So let me reread what we are looking at today. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Holy and true. An absolute clear reference back to Jesus. It was a descriptive term used of him throughout the Bible. He was known as the Holy One by both sides in this spiritual conflict. Peter said in John chapter 6, when Jesus said, are you going to deny me? Are you going to leave me? He says, who else can we go to? You alone are the holy one of Israel. Even the demons, when they confronted him, said things like, we know who you are. You're the holy one. And so when Revelation calls him and talks about the one who is holy and true, there's no doubt in anybody's mind who understood what was going on, that this is Jesus Christ himself speaking through John to this church. The word true is an interesting word because it has a dual meaning. To the Greeks, it meant one thing. To the Hebrews, it meant another. To the Greek, the word true meant something that was real, something that was genuine. To the Hebrews, it meant someone or something that was faithful and trustworthy. It was a promise keeper. Is that Jesus? Do do those words describe everything we know to be true about him? That he is real? He is genuine? He is God the Son? But not only was he that in his essence, he was also the one who was faithful, who was trustworthy, who was a promise keeper. Folks, if life is filled with storms, if you are experiencing spiritual natural disasters in your life, hang on to this truth. He is holy. He is true. He is faithful to see you through whatever it is that's going on in life right now. I was so thankful for that word this morning about not only can God move mountains, he is moving mountains in our very midst today. You can call them mountains. You can call them spiritual storms. You can call them whatever you want. It's one and the same, isn't it? Isn't it? And God is faithful and trustworthy and will keep his promise to see us through, to take us through those things. When it talks in this scripture about him being holy and true, who has the key of David That's something that we might not understand at first blush or at first glance until we take a bigger look at some of the other things the scripture says. That term, key of David, is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 22. And I'm going to read for you this morning verses 20 through 22 because it gives context to what. This promise is. what? What's he talking about there? In Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 22, it says this Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. And I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants, inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key. Of the house of David, there's that reference, on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Eliakim was one of David's key servants, all right? He was a servant of David, and he was given the keys to the king's household. Keys represent authority. Keys represent access to another's wealth and to their resources. And Eliakim in this story in Isaiah 22 was authorized to exercise full administrative power and authority in the king's name over the king's stuff. Okay. (laughs) Well, the promise here to this church and to us is that the one who is holy... The one who is faithful, the one who is true, has given us that same set of keys. That in Jesus, we have been commissioned and given authority in his name. We have been given the resources of heaven, not for our own personal selfish disposal, but to advance his kingdom, to proclaim his gospel, to move that message forward. Folks, how's that for good news? I think it's great news. This spoke to the people in the church, the Christians at Philadelphia, because it was very much like Smyrna in that there were Jews in the synagogue who were claiming and saying and teaching that we, the Jews, are the real people of God. We who follow and believe in Moses and David, the prophet and the king, we're it. And they were very aggressive in teaching this, trying to deny that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were working hard to convince others of that truth. This statement that refers to, I've given you the keys of David, is Jesus himself validating to them that not only is he the Christ, not only is he the Messiah, but you as followers of me, Jesus says, you are the true people of God. And you are the ones to whom I have given the rights and privileges as well as the responsibility as citizens in my kingdom to advance my kingdom, to proclaim the gospel. And as Jesus has the absolute power and authority to give entrance and exclusion into the kingdom and from the kingdom, that door that no one can close if it's open and no one can open if it's closed, he is confirming to these people, you are mine. And not only are you mine, but all that I have is yours. All that I am is yours. Can you let that sink in for a minute to your heart as a Christian? Because that promise is not just to the church at Philadelphia, is it? It's promised to us as well. If we are in him, if we're in Jesus, if we've placed our faith in him, then we've been given that same promise key of David symbolically that, that the resources of heaven are ours again, not to use selfishly, not to use just for our own gain, but to advance his kingdom folks. That's great news. Somebody had to shout about that. That's great news. You don't get in because you're a Jew. That's the message to them. Being a Jew is neither here nor there. You don't get in. I don't get in. Because I'm a Baptist, or a Methodist, or a Pentecostal, or a Charismatic, or a Presbyterian, or a Lutheran, or anything. You don't get in because you're a Boy Scout, or a Girl Scout, or an Eagle Scout, or a member of the Kiwanis Club, or anything else. You mean I shouldn't be a member of the Kiwanis Club? That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying that doesn't get you anywhere in the kingdom of God. How do you get in? What's your entrance? Who's your entrance? I'll give it away. Who's your entrance? It's Jesus. It's faith in him. That's the point of this. To the Jews, it's not about being a Jew and thinking you're somebody. And to you and I, it's not about anything that we are that makes us think we're somebody. You're in because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and done for me in that work on the cross. That's it, folks. Okay. I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door no one can shut. Because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Deeds are important, okay? I, when I say, you know, it doesn't matter, it doesn't on the one hand, but deeds are important because they're, they're the fruit of the relationship you have with Jesus. They, they're not something that earns you approval and earns you entrance into the kingdom, but your deeds are important. I, I don't want to ever minimize that, but they're a result of that relationship, not the thing that gets you the relationship. There's a very odd statement here, though. I know your deeds. You have little power. Does that sound like a diss to you? You have a little power. It's, it's not. It's not a diss. And I want to explain that to you a little bit this morning. I think as Americans who are just so obsessed with power and position and all these other things, we read that and go, oh, that's kind of a bummer, isn't it? I thought you said you didn't have anything against them. They don't have any power. That's not a diss. Okay. That's not a diss at all. It's not a backhanded compliment at all. Geez, you're not as ugly as I thought you were. It's not, it's not one of those, okay? It's nothing like that. I think it was the truth. I think Jesus Christ was looking at this church and looking at their physical circumstances and looking at their life in the natural world and making this observation. You have very little power. Is that a bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing at all. You see, when I read that, I instantly thought of the Sermon on the Mount. I instantly thought of what Jesus said in that first message that he preached. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus was saying there was, you know what? You're really blessed if you realized how spiritually bankrupt you are in and of yourself. That you in and of yourself are poor. You don't have the goods. You see that attitude realizing, oh god, if you don't come and help me, I'm I'm poor, I'm bankrupt, I'm broke. That attitude, that realization opens up for you the kingdom of heaven. Cuz it's it's genuine proper humility. It also reminded me of a later beatitude. Blessed are the the meek or blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. That word meek, that word gentle is the picture of a wild stallion who has been broken, who is now under control. And so any strength that you have that I have isn't about look what I can do for Jesus. It's about any strength, any power that I have is submitted to him as Lord. And he's going to work in and through that strength. It's under his lordship. It's under his control. Now, I don't want to give you a false picture of God by any means. But in my mind, that's when God kind of rolls up his sleeves, looks at you and me and says, I can use you. I can use you because you've got this figured out. You are poor in spirit in and of yourself. You Even the little strength you have, you understand, needs to be submitted to me so that I can work through you, so that I can use you. That's the attitude that God is looking for. And so when he looked at this church and said, you have little power, there's nothing wrong with that. Folks, church, the issue in life is not how big a thing you do for God. That's not the issue in life. It's not the size of the deed that you do for Jesus. The issue is always faithfulness. It's always using whatever it is God has gifted you with, graced you with, to allow him to work through you in humility to do whatever it is that he's called you to do. When Jesus in Matthew 25 tells that story about the guys with different talents and says to the ones who were obedient, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. It wasn't the guy who got five really got a lot of praise and the guy who got two got a little less because he didn't have as many talents. The reward is the same, which proves the point. The issue isn't how big a thing you do for God. The issue is whatever God calls you to do, will you do it faithfully? And will you do a good job at it? With whatever resource, whatever strength, whatever ability he's given you to work for him. Will you? Will you? See, that kind of faithfulness is so important. That's why as a church, as your pastor, and as the other pastors on staff regularly say to you, you need to find what it is that God has wired you to do. And you need to do it with all your might. But I have little power. Is that an excuse? Not according to this letter. It's not whatever it is. God has gifted you to do find what it is and do it with all your might serve faithfully in the kingdom of God, whether that's in the church or outside the walls of the church. You were fashioned. You were created. You were made to do something that only you can do. Don't don't sit on the sidelines. Don't be a pew potato. This is not a spectator sport. This is a participatory sport called being a Christian for the glory of God. Amen? Amen? That's how we have to live our lives. You see, when I read those words, you have little power. It always makes me think of 1 Corinthians 1.27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Can any of you be honest? There are days when I feel like my picture should be next to that verse in the scripture. Who am I and what the heck am I doing in this position? I don't know what I'm doing. That's painfully obvious to some of you I know. I think that's a good feeling because those are the kind of things that drive you to pour in spirit, aren't they? Those are the kind of things that make you go, oh God, the little bit of strength I have needs total to be under your control or this ain't flying. Can you relate to that? Man, I can. And I'm convinced it's not the worst thing in the world. It's not about our power, is it? It's about His power working through us. In spite of being weak, in spite of having no power, they kept Christ's word. They did not deny His name. And Jesus' focus wasn't on, oh, too bad you don't have much power. His focus was, focus was upon their faithfulness, that they didn't deny him, that they did what he called them to do. The, the response was there's an open door set before them. I think that was, has two meanings. It's assurance into the kingdom of God against those Jews who were saying, you're not really God's people. But I also think it was a promise that because you're faithful, there's a door of opportunity before you. Nobody can close it. Nobody. Wouldn't you like that to be said about you? Because you're a faithful believer, there's opportunity in your life. God wants to use you. All you got to do is start walking through that door and the revelation, I think, becomes progressive. When I think of the church at Philadelphia, I so often think of Pastor Marcel and the churches in St. Mark. How many of you have been to St. Mark? Am I telling the truth or what? I mean, that is a church that you could look at and say, you have very little power. Is that a diss about them? No. They have very little power, but the power they have is being lived out in great faithfulness to God. And they may be physically poor, but spiritually, those people are rich, aren't they, Brian? They are rich in Jesus. They, they understand this principle that this is where they're living. Okay, next slide. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan to say that, who say that they're Jews, or not, but they're not. I will, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. I'm not going to talk about the synagogue of Satan. You can go back a couple of weeks ago. I think it was on the 25th of September. I talked about that with relationship to the church at Smyrna, and I don't want to be redundant today, but I want to talk a little bit about that. I will make them come and bow down at your feet. What the heck? There are two different views of this, okay? I'm going to share the two views and I'll tell you where I lean. The first one is a view that's held by replacement theology people. We've talked about them in the past. The folks that think that the church now replaces Israel in terms of the everlasting covenant promises of God. And the belief is that that scripture means that the church's enemies at some point in time are going to experience public humiliation. That before this is all said and done, they're going to come and bow down at the church's feet in submission to the church that is universally glorious and triumphant. I don't buy that one. There's two of us. This is the view that I hold, okay? I think that this scripture points to the Jews coming back to faith in Jesus, as well as a whole bunch of gentiles doing the same. And by gentiles I just mean people who aren't Jews. You may read that and go excuse me where in the world did you get that from from that statement they will come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. It's a great question. Thank you Ken. If you know me at all, you know that my, my life verse, my guiding principle is Psalm 119 verse 160 that says, The sum of your word is truth, which means you've got to see the bigger picture. You can't take a little, a little verse out of context. You have to have the whole counsel of God as best you can on something. And you need to add it all together, the sum. Add it all together and find what the truth is. I wish I had more time this morning to expand on this, but I don't. You might want to write these references down and go Study them a bit on your own. But as I read these scriptures to you out of the book of Isaiah and out of the book of Ezekiel, and David, we're going to just kind of buzz right through these, okay? Um, These are prophetic scriptures that point to this, this bowing down as not being so much a triumph over their enemies, but the overarching message is much more about people coming to acknowledge God for who he is. Okay, so just listen to these with that in mind. This is Isaiah 60, 14. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. But here it is. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. It's not about triumph as much as it's about acknowledging who God is. Isaiah 45, 14, thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in change and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is no one else, no other God. Acknowledgement. That's the primary thing. Isaiah 49, 23, Kings will be your guardians and their princes, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord and those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Ezekiel 36:23 I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst then the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God when I prove myself holy among you in their sight finally Ezekiel 37:28 and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever Every one of those scriptures speaks of two things. A restoration of Israel back to faith in God, which is what Romans chapter 11 is all about. Go listen to old sermons in this series or a couple before that and you'll hear about that. But it's Israel coming back and it's also the Gentiles coming to him. That's what it means. It's not about some triumph. It's about God proving himself. And here's a little something I want to let you in on. Personal belief. Take it for what it's worth. Don't have to believe it if you don't want to. But I believe as as this thing unfolds, and as Israel is kind of the focal point of the Arab world in terms of its destruction, you with me? You see that trying to go on right now? What I personally believe is going to happen is that somehow God supernaturally, miraculously, miraculously, saves Israel when they are outnumbered thousands upon thousands to one. And it is going to leave the Arab world saying this, Allah has no power. Allah is not real. Yahweh must be real. Look what he's done for his people. Not so they come and lick the boots and fall in this terrible, awful surrender of humiliation. God's heart is just as much for the Arab world as it is for any other part of the world. And God, as he has his way in this world, I believe is going to bring a flood of Arabs, a flood of Muslims to faith in Jesus. I do. If you don't agree, email Rob. He'll talk to you all about that. Okay. Thanks for being here, Rob. okay behold I will cause those as the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and not but lie I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept my the word of, excuse me I'm going too fast because you have kept the word of my perseverance I will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth I will keep you from the hour of testing That's another one that has some amazingly different opinions with regards to what it means. People who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that we're going to be out of here before it gets really bad, they believe that the church is going to be out of here before the hour of testing comes. People who believe in a mid-tribulation or a post-tribulation rapture believe that uh, what this really means when it says you'll be kept from that it doesn't mean that we will be removed as in a physical separation, but rather we will be preserved in the midst of this tribulation. Here's where I'm a weatherman that says it's going to be really stormy. I don't predict a sunny, sunny future. So stick with me. Having said that, I hope you don't go look for another weather man on another channel. I hope you'll stay with me in this series and hear what I think, not just I have to say, but what the Bible has to say. Okay. I think to be kept from this doesn't mean that we will be physically removed and separated. I mean that I think it means that we will be preserved in the midst of this. And I point to the story of the children of Israel in Egypt they were there for all those plagues and all that nasty stuff, but there was a protective hand of God that was on them in the midst of that. And I personally believe there is an enormous difference between tribulation and the wrath of God. Oh. There's, you'll see this as we go. There's no comparison between those two. You see, I think this is, this is why I, part of why I believe that. In Luke 21:16, Jesus said, But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair on your head will perish. It's talking about in the resurrection with your new glorified body. Jesus has got your whole personhood in and accounted for. But the promise is I'll see you through it. Not that I'll keep you from it. And also Jesus in John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's, I think, folks, what's going on here. Now, the other thing I want to say to you, let's put the next scripture back up, the Revelation 3. There we go. Um, that little phrase down at the uh, near the bottom of that, those who dwell on the earth, this is about to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth is a term that's used throughout this book on numerous occasions to refer to the pagan unbelievers who refuse to come to faith in Christ. And as we study this book, you'll see that even in the wrath of God, there's opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for these people who are so anti God to finally come to the place before it's all over to come to faith in Jesus. God's not willing that any should perish. And even his wrath is intended to bring people to the place that they bow their knee to him as Savior and Lord. Again, those who dwell on the earth, those, those unbelievers who refuse to submit to Jesus, are the ones that will experience his wrath, not us. There's a huge difference between tribulation and the wrath of God. All right, next set of slides. I am coming quickly. Hold fast To what you have so that no one takes your crown. That crown is probably a reference to the crown of life that we've already talked about in chapter 2 verse 10. Those who endure to the end and also martyrs. People who are martyred for their faith are going to receive the crown of life. I'm coming quickly. How many of you know that quickly to God and quickly to you are like two way different words? Uh, The point is leave quickly up to God, okay? Don't sit there tapping on your watch going, is this thing broken, God, Do you? What's what's going on here? Come on, quickly. 2 Peter 3, 8, underline this one if you haven't. To God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So God's kind of saying, hey, I'll get back to you tomorrow on that one. (laughs) Leave quickly up to him. That's all I want to say. All right. And then the, the final point that I, that I want to make him make here. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Next slide. Remember when I said Philadelphia was a city destroyed on a couple of occasions by earthquakes? This is what remains. And so to a citizen of Philadelphia, when he heard, I am going to make you like a pillar They would instantly think, you know, everything else around us has just been destroyed. It's all fallen to the ground except those pillars. And so there was a promise in that statement to them that said, hey, I don't care if it gets nasty. I don't care if there are storms in your life. You endure, and that's how you'll be. You can make it through this no matter how bad it gets. Do you believe that? You should, because it's the truth. There's no promise in this that it's always going to be sunny outside. Oh, sunny in Philadelphia. That's a TV show, isn't it? It's always sunny in Philadelphia. I've never seen it, but wow, I just thought of that. Probably shouldn't have because it doesn't mean anything and it makes no sense. But anyhow, it's not always going to be sunny in Philadelphia. There's going to be storms. You raised your hand earlier about natural storms and natural disasters that you've been through. So here's what I want to do in the 10 minutes we have left. I want you to get back in your groups. Okay, and here's what I'd like you to do. I would like you to talk about how you relate personally to the church at Philadelphia. What's the Spirit saying to you personally? That's always the message. If you have ears, hear what the Spirit is saying. What's the Spirit saying to you? And how do you relate to two things? How do you relate in your personal life to having little power? Oh man, I totally relate to that one and here's how. And then the other question is, what are, where are the storms that you're facing in life? In your family, in your faith, in your finances, in your work or your business or anywhere else, and how are you weathering them? Well, Kent, that's a little personal, isn't it? Yeah. Here's why we're doing this this morning. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Remember, he is faithful. He's true. He's the Holy one. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near folks, the day's drawing near. And so while we hold fast, the confession of our hope, part of how that's done is by encouraging each other. It's not just sitting in a room and having a positive confession about who I believe Jesus to be. It's also, as important as that is, it's also encouraging one another. And so we're going to take 10 minutes and we're just going to be honest with each other and we're going to pray for each other. It's not just about sharing your story. It's also about lifting one another up in prayer. So what I want you to do as you get in your groups, listen as you get back in your groups. How can you relate to the church? Uh, That means move and turn around and get back in your groups. Um, How do you relate to the church at Philadelphia? What's the spirit saying to you personally? How do you relate to this issue of having little power or feeling like you have little power? And what are the storms in your life that you're facing? And pray for each other. Encourage each other in that process. Okay? So I will pray for us and bless us when we're done. Um, Those who are part of the ministry team this morning, if you'll kind of keep your eye down front, because there may be some of you here today who, rather than being in your groups or maybe even after you're dismissed, want prayer for something else or something special, we're going to have time for that kind of when we're done this morning. So... You who are ministry team people, stay in your little groups. And then after I pray and dismiss us, ministry team folks come up and we'll see if anyone needs any extra prayer. Okay. Are you on duty today? No. So, but did that make sense to you if you were? Okay. So I'm assuming everybody's going to get it, bud. Good. Get in your groups. You got 10 minutes. Go. Would you stand please? Um, I know some of you aren't done, but after I pray and dismiss you, you're welcome to hang out in here as long as you need to, to finish business. Also, if the uh, ministry team will come on up front at this point, if you're here today and need extra prayer about what you were sharing about or prayer for something else that didn't even come up in your group, uh, you're welcome to come and access these people. They will be happy to stay and pray with you. So um, God's pretty amazing, isn't he? Good, You're getting it. God is amazing. You know, we we sing, we shout, we dance because he's good, not because everything in life seems good. If it were up to that, we'd all just be sitting here in stunned silence. It's not about the circumstance. It's about putting our eyes on the one who controls the circumstance. And in the midst of the floods and the torrential spiritual rains or whatever else you got going on, God is still good, God is still in control, and God is still desiring to work this for your good and to the good of those people you just prayed for. Believe it? It's the truth. So Lord, thank you for that today. We believe it even when we're not seeing it all yet. We believe it because you said it and it's who you are, the core of your being. We're thankful again for these letters to these seven churches and we're kind of amazed as to, wow, they really apply to us today. That is the miracle of your word. That is the power of your word operating in our lives. And so Lord, let this word today encourage us and give us hope that even in storms, uh, you're going to see us through them. You're going to bring us out the other side better for them. We hang on to that today. I rejoice in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, bless you. Have a great week.